I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die historic on the Fury Road. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. You better call Tchaikovsky because this Russian is proving to be a hard nut to crack in Mad Max Fury Road, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 24, which begins with a glimpse of someone climbing through a hatch in the tanker, and it ends with the buzzards trying to saw their way through Furiosa's window. We catch sight of a support car. Mm -hmm. It's blue, right? It's as blue as it could be for being very metallic colored. Okay. Yeah. I was curious where this car came from. So I went back to Monday's episode where we got the big overhead. I don't believe this is the second car that was up ahead with the motorcycle and with the Nuxmobile. That is correct, because this is one of Furiosa's original escort cars that she left the Citadel with. When she drove away, you'll remember we had Elvis out front, and we talked about it being the V12 or whatever, the two V6s in front of each other and behind each other, you know, with that setup. And then this support car has always been hanging out in the back with the motorcycles. Okay, so the motorcycles were taken out pretty quick. Mm -hmm. And then this car just kept hanging out in the back while lots of other things were going on. Yeah, when the motorcycles were taken out, I think they were on the other side of the tanker. And they were the ones that you'll remember launched the bolts and exploded the car that rolled over in the air and hit the other buzzard that the excavator eventually drove through. Okay, yes, I remember that. Okay. So these guys have been kind of hanging out around the war rig, coming into view every so often. And I saw them and I was like, oh, that's an interesting looking car. We haven't talked about that yet. So I went on the Internet Movie Cars database, which is always fun. And I found out that it is a Jaguar Mark 7 from back in the 1950s. They came in hard and ragtop styles. So this was probably a ragtop easier for Morton Joe to tear the top off of. And as for the original car, back in the 1950s, the Mark 7 could exceed 100 miles per hour. So it already had a good engine in it to say nothing of what they did to alter it. And in 1952, it became the first Jaguar to be made available with an optional automatic transmission. Oh, well, I guess. So it's a Jaguar for the plebes that don't drive manual. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if this one has a specific name like the other one had a nickname. So I just call it the Jag. As you do. Well, of course. If it had a giant Union Jack flag painted on the top of it, of course, we'd call it the Shaguar. <laughs> Because that's what you saw back in the Austin Powers movies. But that's an entirely different thing altogether. Mm. More importantly in this open shot, though, is the woman that we see crawling out of a hatch in the tanker across the little breezeway into the back of the rig. You say breezeway like it's a pleasant gap between one room and another. You know, that's a good point. You see the word breezeway used for like trains and city buses and whatnot. When we went to Vegas, we took the bus at one point and we were standing in that weird flex tube rotating platform section. And it was not breezy and pleasant. At no, all. it was not pleasant at all. Yeah, we took the regular style bus and not the fancy double decker bus. So it was a very different, more 
local experience (laughs) than the touristy one we were used to with the double-decker bus. And then I've never had to pass between train cars, but I imagine it's a similar situation to this where it's just noisy and windy and rattling around and just very unpleasant. Yeah, I have. And yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, it's not interesting in any way. It's pretty much exactly like this, <laughs> except without the threat of attack by rusted pile of Legos. <laughs> this woman that we see here, this is the Splendid Anghard. This is the first that we see of her. We're going to have her pop up later in the minute. So we'll talk more about her as a character when she shows up. But I think she is the de facto leader of the wives. Like, she's the most bold out of the five. Yeah, and I think that is because she's bold, unless because she's Joe's favorite. And maybe she's Joe's favorite because she is bold. Whatever the reason, she's taking a lot of risk just to climb out of their hiding space and go up to the cab of the rig because she wants to complain. We'll get into the specifics of the complaining when we get to it. I just found it very risky, like you said. To do it at this point. Mm -hmm. You can hear a lot of explosions happening. It just seems like a really inopportune time to come out of hiding. There's a lot of rocking back and forth explosions. I'm sure that they can hear a lot of that. Like It's very clear that this is a bad time. Mm -hmm. I do want to ask a question about her attire. We can already tell that she's wearing flowy, creamy, white swaths of cloth. And there is one that is over her head. Mm. Is that meant to be a head covering or is it just blowing around and happens to land on her head? Because looking forward to her character, that is never there again. Given that the wives have this very just draped in fabric motif to their outfits, I could see it just being something that got blown around by the wind and happened to wrap around her forehead. And she just didn't bat it away because... You're right. When we see her later on this minute, she doesn't have it on her head. And at all points later on in this movie, she never does this again. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I don't know. Maybe she just wants to have her hair wrapped up as she's crawling between the vehicles. I could see the advantage of tying your hair back in some way. Good point. The wives are educated. They are not stupid by any means. So... Maybe she did realize that what she was doing was risky and it was going to be very uh, windy and jostly and in general violent Mm -hmm. out there. So she put that over her hair so that her hair would blow around a little bit less. Yeah. Though she seems to have abandoned that idea pretty quick once she gets into the cab of the rig. Yeah, it's important to remember that the wives are book smart. They're not street smart. Yes. (laughs) They come from a very secluded neighborhood, as it were. But we'll set her aside for a while because we need to focus on what's happening more around the rig as we rejoin the support car. It's going to drive out in front of the rig and then get into position to basically assault the excavator. They're here to give it it the old college try. They were able to destroy the other buzzard vehicles, so they might as well try the same thing they did over here. Goes very differently for them, though. It certainly does. They go out very quick. Very, very quick. So... Obviously, the guy behind the turret, he launches his four bolts, but the warboy next to him throws a thunderstick, but he throws it with a two-handed overhead toss. Now, I'm not a track and field guy. I didn't do any sort of sport that would allow me any sort of expertise on how to throw a thunderstick, but I look at this guy doing it, and I just think that's the wrong way 
that you want to throw a thunderstick? Am I out of line here? I think there is an argument for there's no wrong way to throw a thunderstick. <laughs> Maybe because of the angle of attack, he is quite high above it. So it's a steep angle downwards. I kind of liken it to taking a broadsword and thrusting it through your enemy laying on the ground. It just goes better with two hands. And even though this isn't generally a two-handed weapon, I don't think it's the right way to do it, but it's also not the wrong way to do it. I bring it up because in the next shot, we see the four bolts launched from the turret connect with the front of the excavator, but you don't necessarily see the thunderstick hit. There is a fifth explosion that you see towards the second half of the shot. It happens a little bit higher up, but much later than the turret launched bolt things i still don't even know what they're called and it just seems like a lazy way of going about it like if you're gonna war boy war boy don't half-ass it whole ass it come on <laughs> not that it really does them any good because the excavator seems angered by this assault and so they accelerate and plow into the back of the jag as we were talking about the two-handed throw I was looking at the wrong one because he does it again. Really? Yes. That's why I was confused a little bit by what you were talking about. Because in like 15 seconds, Nux like kind of backs himself in. He tucks himself right in front of the excavator. And the war boys at the top all do the same thing. And the one of them does the two-handed. That's the one I was looking at. So I was like, I don't really know what you're talking about, that it's not successful. It is successful. Oh, that's why you were talking about the high angle. Yes. Okay, we are on the same page a little bit better now. That being said, that's just his style. He does it twice. That's how he likes to do it. Okay, then. Maybe his are weighted a little bit differently. Maybe he packs more in the front end of his. They give it some more weight that it's more advantageous to throw it with more thrust, shorter distances. I guess. I just look at a javelin and I would expect that it is most effective when you give it the most amount of time accelerating. Like if you hold it way back behind you and then use your arm to accelerate it all the way through the entire length of your arm and then let it go, it'll fly faster, straighter, harder, however you want to put it. And the bent arm, double hand toss, it just seems like you're not giving it as much oomph. I think as you could. the analogy that I drew before with a broadsword can still be applied that there are different kinds of swords that are good for different kinds of things, mm -hmm. different kinds of fighting by different kinds of people. Okay. And swordsmen have their preferred kind of sword. And I think that those ideas can be applied to something like a javelin and that this is his preferred style. Well, whatever his preferred style, as I mentioned, it doesn't really do them much because... Through the fire and the flames, the excavator charges them and they have their moment to scream defiantly at the excavator <laughs> before it plows into them. I think it would actually be kind of funny if them screaming at the excavator caused it to back off and run away. <laughs> you can throw explosives at it. You can try and run it off the road. But if you scream at it, the person inside gets scared and then drives away. Yeah, that wouldn't be very Russian, now would it? No, it wouldn't. Because what ends up happening is the excavator plows into the back of the jag and the back end gets lifted up off the ground. Oh, that car is wrecked. Yeah. And that attack by the excavator does feel spiteful. Mm -hmm. Like, get out of my way, you puny weakling car. Look how big and strong I am. Yeah, this is an interesting interaction between the excavator and the jag because 
they accelerate, go into the back of the Jag, and they start pushing it forward, and we get a shot of Furiosa, and she's looking over her shoulder, and then she turns her head to follow the Jag and the excavator, and then the next shot we get, the excavator is way out in front of the rig. So there's a lot of movement happening that's not getting shown in wide shots. We're supposed to piece it together by how people are looking. And the way it happens, I find it a little tricky to follow, but the more I think about it, the more sense it makes. I don't find it particularly necessary for how I watch this movie to keep track of that specifically. I am satisfied seeing the war rig and the excavator side by side, seeing Nux swoop in in front and kind of back itself right up close to it. I'm satisfied by those relationships, mm. even though I can tell that they are ever changing. People are rotating around and pulling forward and pulling back. It's not static. This whole thing is going, I don't know, 60 miles an hour. But I'm comfortable leaving it more simple than that and how I am observing it and observing the action scene as a whole. One thing that I like about the excavator pushing on the Jag is that they use the hydraulic arm at the front of the vehicle to roll the Jag off to the side. Like, the reason the Jag doesn't stay attached to the front of that vehicle and rolls off is because they just use the arm to push it aside. Yep. And I love that the excavator has those articulated attachments because it really increases their functionality in the wasteland. Yeah, this monstrosity is really well thought out, both by the buzzards and by George Miller and his team. So with the Jag officially ended, it was a good run, but now it's over. The excavator goes back to focusing on the war rig. It slows down, it gets right alongside, it starts using the bucket truck on the back to start swatting at war boys. And as Nux drives by, Slit appears in the overhead and he asks to be backed in because he wants a go at this thing. I suppose this is what makes a good war boy, that he is consistently searching for opportunities to die gloriously. He wants to stand out. And I think his chances of succeeding are better with Nux, because Nux's driving skills are quite impressive. Mm -hmm. And we've already seen some great examples. This is another one. He swoops in front of this gigantic excavator and then just neatly lets himself fall into that golden spot and he does it perfectly another thing i like is that after slit throws the thunder stick at the excavator and it does about as much as you would expect it to given the armor on this thing when the excavator speeds up to ram them again nux speeds up too yep he stays in control like yes the rear platform on the nux car gets a little crunched yes but he was able to minimize the damage yeah and slit being the capable war boy that he is his personality leaves something to be desired but he's capable as a war boy he leaps over the top of the nux car and pretty much lands on the hood and i love the way he sprawls out and he's so excited by the adrenaline of it all but one thing that we should probably bring up before we go too far past this point is the fact that as Nux is backing up, we get a couple of shots where Furiosa and Max are pretty much on par with each other. And Max is looking around. He sees Furiosa driving. She turns her head and sees him, and they have their first sight of each other. You can almost call it their meet cute, <laughs> except for the utter disdain 
that Furiosa looks upon Max with. I was trying to evaluate what this expression meant. And the best thing I can come up with is that she's looking at the front of the Nux car and she's like, did they tie a blood bag to the Lancer's perch? Why did they do that? She does seem to be, I don't know, maybe a little judgy. Like He's obviously not there voluntarily. Yeah. So why, why does she look at him like this? I feel like my interpretation of her expression is correct because later on when they do actually meet, she treats him like he was there voluntarily. Like he is a war boy. Even though it's really obvious, it's very clear that he is a prisoner being drained of his blood. So if nothing else, she sees him as less than. Yeah, I don't really understand why, but maybe their future interactions will help us learn a little bit more about that. Yeah, I find this couple of shots to be important just because these are the main actors in the movie. So we need to have them acknowledge each other at some point. But Furiosa sneers and Max rolls his eyes. <laughs> Max looks at her and sees the reason why he's out here. If not for what Furiosa did, Max would still be in the blood bank. It's hard to argue which situation would be better or more comfortable because back in the blood bank, he was hanging upside down. Yeah. And here he's right side up again, but he's strapped to the front of a car. <laughs> it's really hard to choose which one is a better situation. But for Max, this is all Furiosa's fault. And from the opposite perspective, Max is just another accessory to the war boys. Another threat that she's going to have to deal with at some point because she's got to take out all the people that are chasing her, including this guy. Yep. So as I mentioned before, we sidetracked to Max and Furiosa. Nux does the smart thing and speeds up away from the excavator. So that way he doesn't get too crunched by this gigantic thing. He doesn't want to get jaguared or <laughs> however you want to put it. Excavated. Whatever. And of course, Max is just along for the ride. But as we go into the rig, a panel in the floor slides open and a blonde haired woman that we saw at the beginning of this minute pops her head out and she shouts, we can't breathe down there. And Furiosa, dealing with her passenger, says, stay out of sight <laughs> because, duh, stay out of sight. There's a lot of stuff happening right now. Yeah, I'm once again baffled by why Angharad thinks that right now is a good time. So the cavity where the wives are hiding is a feature of the tanker. When Morton Joe's goons found this tanker, it was already pre-built in there. The trouble is that it took them a while to find the cavity in that tanker. And by the time they opened it, there were people inside that had been trapped, unable to get out. So oh no. that... Cavity has a couple of ghosts in it, I'm sure, mm -hmm. and cramming five adult women into it. They're not Amazons. They're not like six and a half feet tall people. They're rather petite, but I can imagine it's probably pretty cramped, and they've been on the road now for a while, so they probably don't know what's going on. The not knowing might be the worst part. Right. So there have been dead bodies in that compartment? At one point, there were. Okay, well... I'm assuming it got cleaned at some point. Yeah, but how thoroughly? Yeah. How well? I mean, seriously, was the thing bleached? I'm willing to bet that when she says that they can't breathe, what she really means is they can't stand the stench anymore. That's very fair. What's not very fair is trying to get Furiosa to do something about it now. Right now. Yeah, because there's really nothing she can do. She can't pull over at a rest stop 
and get some air fresheners. It's yeah. not going to happen. So now seems like a good time to talk about this new face that we see. So the splendid Angharad is played by Rosie Huntington-Whiteley. She does not have a robust acting career. Her top four things on IMDb include this movie, her performance in Transformers Dark of the Moon. She appeared in a short called Love Me Tender dot 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 or else. And she was also interviewed by the entertainment magazine show Extra sometime in 2015. For promoting Mad Max? Probably. Yeah. So Rosie Huntington-Whiteley was born April 18th, 1987 in Plymouth, Devon, England, UK. She is best known for her work for lingerie retailer Victoria's Secret, formerly being one of their brand angels. She's also known for being the face of Burberry's 2011 brand fragrance, Burberry Body, for her work with Marks and Spencer, and most recently for her artistic collaboration with denim-focused fashion brand, Page. Her career in modeling began when she took a position as a student worker for the London West End-based model agency called Profile in 2002. Then at 16, she began appearing in print ads and magazines, making her catwalk debut at 17 in New York. In 2006, she was signed to Victoria's Secret, and over the years, she has continued to model for various companies and most recently collaborated with the aforementioned Page brand to create a 20-piece fashion collection. And of course, she's continued to do other projects. Like, you go on her Instagram and you'll see all of the different things that she's working on and promoting. Moving into her acting side, while filming a commercial for Victoria's Secret, she met director Michael Bay, who cast her as the female lead in 2011's Transformers Dark of the Moon. She basically came in to replace Megan Fox as the girlfriend character to Shia LaBeouf, as the character Carly Spencer. She then went on to play Angharit after that. I'm not quite sure how that connection happened, but that was the next big thing she did. The short that I mentioned earlier, Love Me Tender or Else, was just a three-minute short, probably as a promotion for a lingerie brand. I didn't look too close into that one. As far as her personal life is concerned, since 2010, she has been in a relationship with actor Jason Statham, and in 2016, her representative confirmed that they had become engaged, and in February 2017, she announced that she was pregnant with the couple's first child, and their son, Jack Oscar Statham, was born in June of that same year. So she got a little taste of what it would really be like being pregnant by wearing this belly for months on end. Mm -hmm. And considering she's got all this extra weight attached to her that her body hasn't had time to adjust to when you're pregnant your center of gravity changes but it happens gradually and you get used to it and you adjust but you just slap 60 pounds on there 60 pounds seems a lot <laughs> what maybe 40 pounds I, I i can't tell that thing yeah. was probably made of silicon yeah so slap 40 extra pounds just on you and then she has to crawl all over the place through this tanker connection like, that's pretty good. Yeah, for someone who doesn't have a lot of theater experience, because a lot of the people we've been talking about so far in this movie come from a theatrical background. But I've found, as I watch this movie, that for someone that doesn't have a lot of time on the stage, I find Ang Herod to be a very well-acted character. My memory says so. I have not analyzed yet any of her acting, so we'll see. We've got to go through the sandstorm before we get to see any sort of interaction involving the wives. Mm -hmm. There'll be plenty of time for that later on down the road. One big detail about Angharad that people will probably notice because we're getting a nice close-up on her face is that she's got some, I don't know if they're 
healed burns or scars or something like that going from her forehead down to the side of her face. And I have to wonder if those were there before she got chosen as a breeder in a Morton Joe's harem or if that was there as some sort of abusive punishment. We have been talking about her boldness and maybe her boldness doesn't always go over so well. Could be either way. I'm interested to see, because I don't remember off the top of my head, if we get much history of the wives from them. I know that we do get some in the comic, so we'll address that when it's time. Have they been there since they were children, or were they chosen as teenagers as they were becoming women and becoming more attractive? Off the top of my head, I don't think it explains in exact terms in the comic how the wives are chosen but i think you're on to something with them being chosen as teenagers as they're starting to turn into women because cheeto who is one of the wives that we haven't met yet she's the youngest and she hasn't been touched yet because she's the newest of the five and she's not that old so i have a feeling that when the wretched come to the citadel if any among them are fit to be chosen as one of Joe's prized breeders, that's probably when they get taken up. Yeah, that sounds like a possibility. So getting back into the minute, after we spend a little bit of time in the cab with Furiosa and Angharad, we cut outside and we see that the buzzards have started to spin up their saw on that front arm, and they swing it around and plunge those saws, because there's two, one on top, one on the bottom, into the doorframe of the rig. And so sparks just start flying everywhere. And as Furiosa tries to shield herself from the spark, she shouts, Now! To really telling Herod, hey, get the heck back into the tanker. Now is not a good time. And all of the sparks falling over and Herod encourage her to move a little faster. She has definitely put herself in a precarious situation. Not only is her hair flying all over the place with the sparks flying all over the place, but also her drapey clothing is also flying all over the place. So many things could catch on fire. <laughs> what worries me is the situation that Furiosa is currently in, because how do you fight something like this? You've got to keep control of the war rig. You've got to keep it moving forward. Meanwhile, you've got these giant blades in the window next to you throwing sparks everywhere with no clear way to fight back. Well, I haven't watched Minute 25 yet, but she could just, you know, turn. She actually has a lot of power in this situation. The excavator and its attack is based on the rig not moving. Mm. So all the rig has to do is move itself further away and the excavator then has to reposition itself to make contact again. Well, we'll just have to wait for Monday to figure out what happens that gets Furiosa out of this tricky situation. So come back after the weekend because a lot is about to happen. Nux is going to pull a crazy stunt. Slit is going to find the excavator's weak point. And Max is going to experience a bit of a close shave but that's also the thing that's just going to solve so many problems. Oh, yeah. And there's a sandstorm that I keep mentioning. So <laughs> we have that to look forward to. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. 
Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at madmaxminute, like us on Facebook by searching for madmaxminute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit madmaxminute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 24 Fury Road. See you next time. Thank you.